welcome to the Find Your Path podcast, a podcast dedicated to finding and defining your own unique path at work and in your career. I'm your host, career and leadership coach, Michelle Yu, and I'm here to show you what's possible in the realm of your career, which starts by unlocking the power of your mind. Life is way too short to be following someone else's path, and you should work on the things that you enjoy. Now let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Find Your Path podcast. I'm really excited to share this conversation that I had with Duncan So, who is an expert on all things burnout, as in 2022, and actually just since the pandemic, Burnout has been such a hot topic for a lot of individuals and organizations in terms of how do we prevent and how do we recover from this? So it's definitely a newer endemic that we're experiencing and coming to the forefront of our professional and personal lives. So I thought it would be really cool to have Duncan So from the Burnout Clinic speak a little bit more about his experience with burnout about what he sees in individuals and defining burnout and what that means. To introduce my guest today, Duncan is an expert in workplace well-being and burnout recovery, delivering clinical burnout retreat experiences to help workplace leaders quickly recover from burnout and empower their careers. Having been a child of corporate burnout, it has led him professionally into the field of human flourishing for over a decade working on systemic social change projects. He's a social entrepreneur, a change agent, on a mission to empower change within companies and communities that are on the path of business and social good. He's a graduate from the University of Toronto in engineering. In private practice, he's a board-certified master practitioner of NLP, MER, and clinical hypnotherapy with the Association of Integrative Psychology. It was such a fun experience speaking to Duncan on the podcast today. He was actually in St. Lucia wrapping up a retreat that he was on. So if you hear some wind or some bird chimes in the back, just know that this is all very organic, part of the conversation and part of the effect. My hope is that through this episode, you'll get more language about how to identify burnout in yourself. And then also some tools and strategies about what workplaces, managers, and HR can do to better support their employees from a prevention standpoint. Overall, a very enriching experience. I learned a lot personally, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm really excited to have a special guest on the show today, Duncan, and we're going to be picking his brain about all things burnout and really digging into his story and digging into his perspective on how to overcome it and how to really heal from it. So Duncan, would love to just dive in and learn about your own personal burnout story. So I know you started off in the corporate world as well, in engineering, and then completely switched paths. So tell me a little bit more about your story and how you got into NLP, somatics, entrepreneurship. Would love to hear more. Wow. So Michelle, thank you for having me. And I'm here to not just uh, excite your audience, but hopefully impart some insights that they can use and bring home today, especially if after listening to this, acknowledge that some of the things that we've talked about might be in there in your own life. And so a little bit, I love this, it's called my Genesis story, right? So the hero's journey. And I'm the typical, I call the stereotype Asian son that parents, immigrate parents came to Canada, all professions, all professionals, and wanted me to either be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant, that type of thing. And I chose my path in engineering, uh, not because I love to engineer things, although I do think that way. But I loved playing video games as I was a kid. So that was also my primary motivation. And that was very, brought a lot of passion into my life. Let's put it that way. Deep interest and a lot of joy in my life. But when I went into engineering and, and later in the workplace, things changed, right? Because th- that was during the time when Apple was still selling a computer. It wasn't even a phone yet. And Facebook was still a web page. You can imagine how far uh, back it was. And some of your listeners will be like, what do you mean? I didn't even know that existed. So a little bit far back, so I don't want to date myself too much. And fast forward seven years in that corporate IT career as an engineer, building literally from scratch. Seven years later, I literally nervous picked my entire right eyebrow off, gained probably 50 pounds of stress weight that was not needed, 
and did almost five to six years of consistent in the office at seven in the morning, leaving at nine, but still on call, tethered to a BlackBerry at that time. Now BlackBerry doesn't really do that anymore, but tethered to a BlackBerry at that time because I was on call. So essentially I was working 24 seven and it was tough. And so I had what I thought was a quarter life crisis. Oh, victim millennial, here we go all entitled. As an engineer, I'm a problem solver, right? So I thought about woe is me type of a thing. I wanted to solve this problem and I didn't really understand what that meant from an emotional front and a typical get in the profession, be successful doing all these very practical things. I wasn't even very emotionally developed at that time. And so I was just a really confused person that was essentially sick. I had a lot of illnesses and I didn't know what it was. And so fast forward to today, we call that burnout. That was a term that was coined primarily for doctors and nurses, social workers, frontline workers. A lot of it today we call have an included moral injury to it because they have to deal with life and death situations. But today we go through the same challenges without that moral injury, just because the technology that surrounds us and the pace of life and hustle culture has essentially entrained us into always being on and always go. And even though we know it, compulsively still do it and have challenges to stop. And so, you know, just long story short, to give a little bit of a happy ending there. Um, and you'll hear this from a lot of people who have gone into what we call burnout, is there is a light at the end of the tunnel for those who actually recover and uh, do the proper practices to get through it. Uh, there is almost a life awakening process. Today, we call it the great resignation or the great reshuffle, or some people might even call it the great reawakening because through burnout forces you to that corner, right? You have really no more choices. And then you really have to go introspective to recognize what is meaningful to you. And so I left the world of engineering and, and computers and, and software and moved into human flourishing to become more of a social and human engineer to understand what it takes for us to flourish as human beings. And so that led me on another decade path of doing amazing things from creating a school in Ghana to empower young youth leaders to launching a cryptocurrency to empower indigenous people all the way to the burnout clinic now for systemic change around ending uh, burnout, not just in the workplace, but re-empowering the way we work. So a lot of mission, deep mission uh, level work that you'll find with that because purpose is a side effect of coming out through the other side of burnout. That is such an inspiring story. And I want to just take a moment to pause here too, because for the listeners that are listening in, they can't actually see the background where Duncan's in. He's in St. Lucia and he has these beautiful palm trees behind him and the wind rustling. And he's there for doing one of those retreats through the burnout clinic. And it's just so inspiring to see you changing from that person, like plucking your eyebrows out and constantly being at work to now being back in tuned in nature with your body. And I think the other thing that was really interesting that you brought up was you were saying not as emotionally developed when you were in an engineering role or in the corporate world. And then to now, like I'm sure emotions is what you work with a lot in terms of processing. So there's such like a 180 that I see here. And I think it's very inspirational for people who are at that threshold and not sure what the end of the tunnel could look like. And it could look like your story, your hero's journey of launching your businesses, being in St. Lucia and working on all these social missions. So thanks so much for sharing that. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little about burnout and like create a common language for what that means. Like I've gone through my own burnout story as well. And I didn't pluck my eyebrows out, but I was just unable to stop. And I got to a point where my brain just shut down and I was having crying spells and I just couldn't function. So it looks different for everybody, but from your experience in doing this work, how can people start to recognize it in themselves? What are some of the common signs that you see that maybe other people they're in denial or they're labeling it something else? How do you define burnout? Yeah, that's a really great question. I, I love starting off with that because, you know, one, there's an engineering piece of my mind that goes, I want something very strict. And so from a strict definition perspective, the World Health Organization defines burnout as uh, mismanaged workplace stress. And that's a little broad, right? They even loosen that even more to calling it a workplace phenomena. But what we found in reality and having even going through this pandemic, this whole like almost three-year process, is this work-life blur, right? So as much as organizations are labeling or deeming it as a workplace issue, we see it in all areas of our life. And we'll go through different paths 
of burnout, because burnout's not an on or off thing. It's a path that we do and we incorporate what we call like hustle or burnout related habits that really mess us up. Before we go there, there's also a very intimate piece of the language of burnout that a lot of us can appreciate and recognize because burnout, by the way, is a metaphor. If you ever listen to anything in the DSM, like any of those diagnoses, it's like it's English, but it's a language of its own. And you have to pull out a book just to figure out what the heck it really means. Again, I'm not here about diagnosing people, but burnout's a metaphor, meaning it feels as if the flame inside has extinguished. And we hear this language all the time, grinding through work, but soulless activity. And I'm just dead inside. You're a walking zombie. So we know, like we metaphorically know because our unconscious mind speaks in metaphors. It's not a very intellectual process. I... Wish it was, but it wasn't. And, and it's a beautiful thing because when you tap into that language, you can really start to uncover how to recover from it in different ways. Now, from a more left brain intellectual process, there's what I call five general paths that researchers in the space around burnout have identified as a general indicators or categories that mix and match, by the way, that lead us into what this condition that we'll call burnout. So the first path that everyone is aware of is fatigue and exhaustion. We know this, misuse this word sometimes too, and then we mix it with stress, right? Oh, I'm just so exhausted, I'm so tired, but they'll say I'm burning out at work. It's okay, true, but what they really might mean specifically is what do you mean by that is I'm just so tired, I'm exhausted, I wake up tired, I go to bed early or I go to bed late or whatever it is, but I need a vacation from a vacation. I'm just like, you know, what the heck's going on? I don't really understand this. And these challenges like adrenal fatigue and these different things that lead to, again, inflammation and disease. And especially in a time during the pandemic where you don't want that because your immune system just plummets. There's up all this chronic stress that your body's just like, I'm done. I'm so worn out and tired. But the challenge, and we'll talk about that later, is when that point of no return, that becomes that pain point for burnout. So the first path is fatigue exhaustion. The second path is the cousin or the mirror to it is what we call like the high anxiety, high energy intensity part of it. So you'll experience this as a panic high anxiety, chronic worry, and triggers, right? So you'll trigger into what we call emotional volatility. So that could be anger spells, worry spells, all the way down to phobic experiences, insomnia, I can't sleep, all those different things because we're so wired and turned on all the time. Go, our adrenals are pushing us. We need to have to survive, but do well. We're popping like our Red Bulls and our caffeine and whatever it is, and, and then double doubting on carbs and our weight exploding and all these different things because we're coping with all things that we struggle with, which drains you mentally and emotionally. And that leads to that path of burnout. So that's a really big area, especially during this pandemic that a lot of us have gone through and have experienced that and our mental health just plummeted reverse since pre-pandemic, what we call a 2080 rule. And so that's path number two. Path number three is something that's uh, less obvious, but very obvious in the HR world. So if you're in HR, you'll know this one is what we call like chronic cynicism or sort of the rampant cynicism and that leads to a lot of toxic behavior and so this one's a tough one because if you're actually exhibiting what we call these toxic behaviors chances are you don't notice it it's just because one you have a very negative outlook in life because you're protecting yourself a lot of not so great things have happened and you've learned to just deal with it quote unquote you've moved from a realist but you're not you're not a pessimist but you're not a optimist as well so you call yourself a realist but you exhibit very toxic behaviors and basically all of the preventative culture behaving exercises HRs invest lots of dollars in just basically goes out the window because a very small handful, like two to 5% of your workforce who's exhibiting these microaggressions and negative behaviors just destroy all that culture work. Now, the problem with that is that's draining, meaning is you may not know that, but when you look at the world from that negative lens and you're making those decisions, you're almost like second doubting everything that comes into your life. So you can imagine how exhausting that is. But secondly, how exhausting is that to the people who are around you? Because you could be shooting down really great ideas, you could be shooting down people who are optimistic, who have great outlook in life or are motivated to do things. And you're just trying to be a realist, a cynic and poking holes everywhere. So it's not just training for yourself, it's training for others as well. And not just in the workplace, because show of hands, how many people have that type of mod, mother, father, or perhaps even a father-in-law or mother-in-law, right? Or siblings that do that can be such a rain on your parade. So not a very normal thing. It goes beyond just personality types and temperaments. So that's a big area as well. Two more areas. This one is, again, very popular in high achiever land, right? So age, like sorry, we call A-type high achievers, always doing things, one success, especially what we call like extrinsic type of rewards, right? If it's success in money or success in owning material or success in all those different things, we put a high value on performance. And so this area is called uh, performance efficacy or low performance efficacy. 
Uh, and we see this a lot in senior leaders, and especially those in the creative ex execution type of roles or specialist roles, because in a specialist role, you come in, you know, time attraction, HR brings you in, you go through all of the ropes and uh, jump through all the hoops and, and, and ropes to really get in, to join in that workforce. You do well for the first month or two with all that novelty. And then something, I don't know, something happens and your performance tanks. You don't know why HR just puts you on a poor performance sort of action plan or one of those variants and you're struggling now and you just, you don't know how to cope with it. And so you just try to fight through it by trying to achieve your way out of burnout. And that could be extremely painful. If you're not a specialist, the second piece of it is the flip side is on the management side. So management side is what we call loss of executive function uh, or decision-making problems. Your job is just to get input from people really and make really good decisions to make sure you're following through and executing uh, flawlessly. Right? That's a job of management and making sure we're a very well-oiled, you can call it a machine. If you're on the industrial side, you can call it just like a very fluid culture, right? If you're more on the people side or anything in between. And so when you have to spend three hours just to an answer an email, that's a problem, right? So it's called loss of executive function. And just because harder and harder, we feel the weight of burden of decision-making. And that's what we call this whole area called performance efficacy challenges. Very draining. And those are a big area of burden. And lastly, I call the life crisis or the sort of the identity crisis is you hit that, who am I? What's the purpose of this? And feeling empty inside. And so this one is what many of us experienced during this great resignation is because we're now at home. We couldn't have gone to work and it's gone us to contemplate now in the beginning that we've saved hours on commute every day with all this extra time to think about is this what I really want to do? Fast forward today onto the next six months to a year is now returning to work. Is I like this remote option and it's made me feel good. And, or if I go to an office, there's conditions of why I like being in the office, but this autonomy and flexibility has given me a lot more of a lot more clarity of how I want to design, not just my own work, but how it integrates with my life. And so for those who aren't even there yet and just like hands up in the air and it's like total life crisis, like, why am I even here? I don't even like my work. It's a soul sucking from me. Can I see myself doing this for the next year, three years, five years? Probably not. Am I insane enough to stay? And then usually it's, I have the debt obligations, the mortgage, the kids, all the burdens of responsibility on you just to say, well, I have to suck my soul away because I'm literally enslaved to the decisions I've made early on in my life that I feel that I can change. And the reality is, yes, absolutely you can. There's a push to do it, but mentally, emotionally, you're so exhausted. You don't even know how that even looks like. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. And for many, that drops a lot of us into a state of depression. And so these are these five paths and they can all intermingle uh, here and there very situationally. Um, at the end of the day, all five of these paths are very energy draining. And this is the de strict definition we use at the burnout clinic for burnout is when you expend more energy, than you can replenish keyword is as a habit. And so you're going through these five paths and you're surviving, you're languishing was a, was a term that was popularized a year and a half ago. And you're languishing or you're surviving and survival's become your go-to operating procedure day to day. And even though these operational practices are not good and you want to put in prevention practices, you have no more capacity to even do that and you burn out, right? You go through all these deep areas where eventually you go from burnout to complete blowout, right? Crisis, which is where most people think right? it's a binary thing like burnout's an on and off switch, but it's not really, it's a spectrum. And it's until they're completely blown out, they're in crisis mode that they recognize for themselves, I gotta do something about this. But usually one, it's too late, you've gone through so much pain and the recovery process is very long, right? It's a lot longer than, than just you know identifying it early and recovery and prevention are two different things. And so for those who think I can journal my way out of this, go for walks and meditate and go for a facial or a Epsom salt bath, that's great for prevention. But when you're in the midst of burnout and you're feeling it, it's a very different story. Oh my gosh, I'm laughing and smiling because I wish I had this definition while I was in the process. Just to like recap what you said, because I feel like it's a checkbox and I checked out every single one of those boxes during my period. So like the flame is extinguished, you're fatigued, you're exhausted. There's chronic cynicism like in life and at home or at work and at home. It can be uncovered as high achieving type A work performance and then loss of executive function. I feel like I've checked out each and every 
every one of those. And I wish that I knew those were the signs of identifying that it was burnout. Because like you said, I would try to go get manicures and facials and do the things that I think on a surface level, I thought would help me feel better, but didn't. And then we'll talk about what organizations can do to, to help employees. But I remember going through that period and just being like, I don't know what's happening there was like this constant need to check my emails and get that adrenaline rush, but then an inability to switch off from it. So it was a very interesting time. And I totally agree with you. Prevention is very different than recovery and everyone's journey will look different. Mine was like, I had to hit a very hard and fast reset of taking a leave of absence before I hit a wall. I was headed down that way, but I basically needed to do something very intense to get myself out of that rhythm. But on that note, when you were describing all of this, I don't know if you've watched the movie Soul, the Disney Pixar movie Soul, but there's that one scene and it's probably one of my favorite scenes ever, but he's like in the office and he's really down. And then like in the back end, his soul is getting healed and getting back in tune with their body. And then he wakes up one day at work and just pushes everything away and runs away. I feel like that's like the inflection point of getting help, of starting to move forward and see that light at the end of the tunnel. But everyone gets there differently. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what can organizations or managers do if they see someone down that path and they know there's something different and they know that this person's not operating at their best capacity, but like what can organizations do to really support their people? And I'll caveat with this too, when I was going through this and I worked in HR and I wanted to take a leave of absence, it was still really challenging for me to realize I needed to take a leave, like a mental health leave of absence. And I've supported employees doing that on the other side, but for me to actually be the person there, it was such a trippy experience because I'm normally the other person, but I need to do this for myself. So I'm curious, any thoughts you have on how organizations can help their people if they recognize the toxic cynicism constantly or they just know that their high performer like needs a break what can organizations or managers do Ah, great. So first, I want to acknowledge that you stepped up and you went for your own leave right that's a huge thing for the employee to be self in tune with themselves but on the flip side because you were also the HR side and I'm going to speak to a lot of HR and people leaders anyone that has people around them so whether they report to you or they report on a peer-to-peer -peer type of a thing the first thing that I talk about is one you take these indicators and you need to have the skill to one identify it right so we want to build rapport so the challenge today and, and I've gone through almost two and a half years with this pandemic with these lunch and learns of HR to just build awareness around what burnout is what are the indicators and the first tips I give is you have to build acuity or sensory awareness around what the indicators are. because one of hustle culture. So that's something that's unconscious to most of us is we live and in, we're inundated in a culture that's all about go. We don't know why we can go into that as an engineer. I'm more than happy to explain the psychology around that from an engineering lens. But aside from that, for most of us who just go through meeting marketplace needs, business demands, and the leaning of the workplace, being more lean and more agile, being more nimble, we don't understand what that means, what that has on us as a mental and emotional toll. We see it as a performance change, agility change, and its impact on being more innovative and creative in the marketplace. Uh, but it's not very great for us as human beings, right? especially in a time where we're human beings, not human doings or human havings, and we're not machines in a world where machines and tech is going exponential, humans are going exponentially the other way, right? And so if you're an HR leader, the first thing you may want to consider, one, not thinking disengagements in the workplace or your engagement surveys are going to find burnout. You can be highly engaged, a achiever, but still be burning out. So Gallup's been doing tons of studies and research on that using, I think it was for the high achievers, the highly engaged people uh, on their surveys, I believe it was like 40%, you don't quote me, but you can go on Gallup and check it out. 40% of those were experiencing uh, sort of medium to high levels of burnout. So engagement does not equal burnout, right? So a high disengagement doesn't equal burnout, really important. And the flip of a switch for HR should be like, I need to do some form of surveying, whether that's even in absence of survey fatigue, because I know that's happening as well today, is how can I survey, whether through technology or through people, asking the right questions, building the psychological safety, or am I aware of trust and rapport with people as managers, or not even as managers, but as peers, for people to share openly with what they're feeling. Now, the reality is we always do it. We blurt it out anyways. It's usually the beginning of a call or whatever. Hey, how are you doing? Aside from I'm fine, but throughout the conversations, like, oh man, I'm just so spent. Do I really need to do this? And 
Like think of the hums and haws and the sighs and what you will think is to suck it up. But those are a really great time now to gain the acuity to be like, well, before I say suck it up, maybe since they said that, I should ask, since you've said that, because that's probably, it just came out. Actually, I'm serious about this because right now, because of the pandemic and because of hustle culture, our workplace has prioritized that burnout. Or if you don't want to use a word burnout, that turnover leaving the workplace because of chronic stress is a no-go for us. Meaning is if you're leaving the workplace, whether it's long-term disability or just quitting us, it is a no-go. Like literally, if you quit because of stress, I will pay you $5,000. That's a commitment I want from workplaces. But if you put that commitment in, you can say, if I'm willing to pay $5,000 to somebody, if they're going to leave because of stress, then we're gonna, what you're going to say is double down is, I want to make sure that nobody leaves a workplace because of chronic stress. And I will make sure there are mechanisms in place to prevent that from happening, right? Now, I'm not talking about a turnover because of better compensation or better environments or family needs or things where life is improving different ways for the individual. I'm talking when your workplace has a direct negative influence or impact on someone's mental or emotional health. There is a place for you to be able to influence that without needing to be a therapist. Yeah, that is so fascinating. That idea of paying people if they're going to leave or like that not even being an option for why they want to leave is so fascinating because, yeah, it's so expensive to rehire and refill people. Why not prevent them from that and put in, like you said, put in place mechanisms to prevent that? This is probably a different tangent, but what I see now is with the great resignation, people are leaving the workforce. That means there's more work to be done. So people are spread thin. Everyone's a little bit under-resourced and that causes the stress to go up and then it perpetuates this whole wheel. And I think it's also an organizational decision too, like how to better resource their team so that they aren't overstretching their high achievers. But yeah, that's so fascinating. So the quick relationship is I know some of our audience are HR members oh. as well. What you just said there, by the way, are the intangible costs of turnover. Sometimes you think turnover is just direct cost. So I like the magic number of 10,000, but I think the going rule of some now is a third to two thirds of someone's salary. But it includes what you just said, right? This, especially if not just persons left because of burnout, there's a culture of burnout that's happening. That workload ticking over and that shift. When I rehire, retraining, people now complaining because of this and the impacts it has on their work and their life around them. All of this are intangible costs that literally go into turnover costs that if HR hasn't factored in yet, it's definitely good to factor in because that is literally bottom line decision-making for ROI when it comes to preventing burnout through recovery. Oh yeah, absolutely. So good. And yeah, I think there's always two sides of the coin. There's what the organization can do and there's tips and strategies that you've just provided. And then on the individual end, there's things that individuals should do and making sure they're keeping their emotional and mental well-being high. But now that we talked about the organization side, let's switch to the individual lens for a sec. So how do you know then, let's say HR has all these things or doing the best they can to help alleviate the, or the workplace stress, but someone is still feeling that and they're trying all these things. How do you know it's time for someone to go through a more intensive reset? Like when they hit the point of no return, everyone's trying to give them the resources, the organization's supportive, the manager's supportive, they have what they need, but it's more than on the individual where they need some, they need. But how do you know it's time for an intensive reset? How will that person know when they've reached that point where they're at a breaking point and they need to do something different? Great question. So I'll preface this because I want to integrate two channels of, what's the right word? The pushing of energy or, or communication of where burnout is today. There is a group, especially Harvard Business Review does a lot of promoting that burnout is a workplace issue. So it's systemic and it's true. Just like racism, it's systemic. There's a systemic issue. Oh, we got to deal with that. So workplaces need to step up to manage that. And it's a really great thing. Now, what that also creates is the individual suddenly says it's out of my control or out of my power. And so it unequips or disempowers people uh, when that happens. So on the flip side of the coin, like you said, a coin has two sides. On the flip side of the coin, burnout has a systemic component and it has an individual component because the anxiety you're feeling, the fatigue, the exhaustion, if you're traumatized, by the way. So right now, after the pandemic, burnout was the whole 2021 thing to 2022. The next big thing, I'm not an oracle, but you can quote me because when anxiety was a, a number one topic in 2020, I told them burnout is going to be 2021, but 2022 and 2023 is going to be workplace trauma. And that's just because of the nature 
of the path of burnout of where things are going. And we call it workplace trauma because it seems like it's coming from the workplace, but everything in life that's compounded together, high workload, right? Work doesn't just have to be working at work, but I work at home. I work taking care of my kids, aging parents and all these different things. So at the individual level, the first thing that I want, you can write this down as a mantra if you need to is, I need to take responsibility for my own mental and emotional well-being. And just as an acknowledgement, again, Michelle, for your amazing self-awareness, that's exactly what you did. So you acknowledged it and you put that power into you so that you can change. Now, for those that are listening that are like, oh, this may be an insight moment, the reflection is true, right? If you don't take responsibility for it and you expect the government or the healthcare system or your boss or your manager to somehow fix that, they won't. They can put in some policy, some changes, some cultural whatever, but once it's inside your nervous system, it's in your nervous system. They can't go into your nervous system and do those tweaks. Obviously, unless you speak to a therapist of some sort, they'll help you with that. Most people try to DIY themselves in the beginning. And so, you know, to your question of the point of no return, right? So burnout is interesting because in one of my favorite lines that I use for burnout is burnout eats willpower for breakfast. And it's a challenge because when you do things like you want to DIY out of it, you want to learn the skills, you want to do all those things. We have a 30-day burnout recovery challenge that we offer at the burnout clinic. We do it both privately at workplaces and publicly where you can win a prize to Jamaica if you finish that. So for those listening, if you want to enroll, be happy to do so. We have a prize for that as well with the burnout retreat. But when you DIY with it, you have resources. Meaning if you were to do an audit, and we call this a energy audit, or literally a part one or week one of our 30-day challenge, is the first skill you learn is to audit where your habits are going, what your day-to-day activities are looking like, right? So it may on the surface look like behaviors or general behaviors, and we're like 80, 90% creatures of habit, right? This will have some novelty here and there, but really it's all the same. It's all the same. Otherwise, you just can't regulate really well. So what you do when you audit your days or weeks or months, you start to notice patterns. And when you see all those different things, what you're going to measure literally is the energy draining, like a sort of plus five energy enriching. Or is it like a negative five energy draining? You can use your own numbers. It's just a spectrum. And zero being net zero. It doesn't really happen. That doesn't really bother me. So you want to notice is it what your energy levels are with those three behaviors. Uh, who is involved? Yes, there is figures there with people. And the predominant emotion. Is it fear? Is it anger? Is it sadness? Do I feel hurt? Do I feel guilt? What's driving all of this? And so this is really great for the individual, but also to communicate well-informed to your management, right? Because if your management's like, ah, suck it up, they'll be like, hang on, I learned this from the burnout clinic, by the way. So why don't you sit down for a moment? Because I'm going to educate you a little bit, but not in a look down in a way, but I've spent some time on myself to look at where my energy trainers and gainers are. And where this gives a breath of fresh air for the workplace is most people say, I'm burned out, hands up in the air, overgeneralize it and peace out. And you'll recognize when you do these types of audits for yourself is there's really two, three, four, five things that you can change immediately, right? That will help you to just replenish energy. And some of that can realign to your values, some of that can realign to your behavior, some of that could be delegating, some of that could be just getting it off your plate, setting boundaries. There's a lot of really great tactics that we share as part of this that helps you to recover and learn recovery skills, not just at a cognitive level, but at an emotional and neurological level so that you can feel it immediately, right? That's the clear part of it. It's not just relieving, but it doesn't come back again. There's no remission there. And so from the individual, again, take responsibility, and then if you can't learn this stuff anymore, like you're just realizing, I just have no more willpower to even take something out of my schedule or out of my habits to put in something new. That's why prevention is hard, right? Because you want to do yoga, you want to do meditation and walks and stuff. You look at your schedule, like it's so hard for me to just slip in a walk every day. It's such a struggle. I can't even get out of bed. You're telling me to go take a yoga class every two days or three days. You must be killing me. I'm dying here. And so that's prevention is different from recovery. Recovery is I'm going to clear things within your nervous system, help you self-regulate again, free up capacity, mental and emotionally, uh, and permanently too, if done right, so that you could implement all the preventative practices to the opposite of burnout is also true, right? The definition being for me is when you replenish more energy than you can consume as a habit, hallelujah, you're living a lifestyle of well-being, which is the opposite of burnout. And that usually is you have purpose in your life, passion and excitement and joy and all those things, all about human flourishing and thriving in today's world. Yeah. 
I feel like all of that really resonates for me too. And just to add in now as a coach, like before my whole burnout stuff, I didn't consider myself a coach because I didn't have the capacity to help other people. And I think what you're really alluding to is this, the whole cliche oxygen mask. You have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you put it on other people. And I think while you're in that phase of spiraling in negativity or just there's low energy, it's so easy to then, at least for me, it was so easy to blame everyone else around me to say, it's my boss. It's my husband. It's my this. It's my that. It's my dog. All of these things. And I remember for me, at least going into therapy, like I went through a very intensive therapy to reset. It was four hours a day across 10 days to really reset my nervous system. But that was like so hard to realize that look, you could have all the preventative or you could have the support from everyone else around you, but there is a level of self-responsibility. And I think this is the lens to shift is sometimes we can't change the systemic, but we have to then change ourselves within and owning responsibility of getting help of doing something different is all within one's control. I think it's hard for people. There's a lot of resistance when they're in that phase and it feels like there's no help and they want to just blame everyone else around, but it does really come down. And as a coach, I fullheartedly believe this. It really comes down to shifting the individual and getting help, seeking help, wanting to really try to change and do something different. And knowing, of course, it's complicated, right? Because mentally you might know and cognitively these things, you know, to push back to set boundaries, but there's a somatic piece to it where it is stuck in your nervous system. Your body isn't able to relax and your mind keeps telling you to go. So there's that imbalance that happens where a reset can really help to bring everything back into alignment. So I'm curious then, we talked about that's the hard recovery, right? Like sometimes we're forced into recovery, but now let's switch to prevention because you mentioned that balance. Recovery looks very different than prevention, but what are some of the prevention techniques that someone can start to incorporate? I love that you brought in scaling questions, like really being honest with yourself and how you feel because that for me was my wake up call. Like I went to the doctor's office, they gave me a questionnaire and I like failed and bombed everything. Everything. And I was like, wow, I can't, I really need some help here. But in terms of like people to prevent themselves from getting to that point, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. So I just want to separate this prevention can mean different things for different people. And so there's the, I'm doing fine. What are some good prevention practices? Meaning if you were to score yourself on burnout, you're doing well on all sort of channels. I just want to upkeep myself and make sure I'm good. How do I prevent myself from burning out? But there's that prevention, which is any typical wellness type behavior, right? So anything that most workplaces do today, like the yoga, the mindfulness, the walks, the breathing, a lot of breath work is really great as well. Diet's important, sleep's important. So everything that all of your health and fitness and nutrition coaches, and even talk therapy to a really great extent, because sometimes you just need someone to listen to and it'll be a really great way to process emotions and, and different things like that. So those are all really great preventative strategies. Now on the gray zone, I call that that intersection between recovery and prevention. When you're bobbing in between, sort of have it, don't. And we all were dynamic, right? We all put in that spectrum. There's days that we're doing really well. There's days we're not doing really well. And we're not at that point of diminishing returns there. And so when we're there, we're trying to learn some new tactics. What I do recommend, and this is something that I think would put a smile on all of our HR friends' face or colleagues, especially if they're people-oriented. And that is values. But I want to caveat this because most HR spends a lot of time on what we call organizational values, meaning is it's a, in my world, we call it a hallucination, like literally the same effect you do when you do shrooms, right? Because you're looking at these labels like teamwork and bravery and all these things that sound really nice that they bring in essentially a marketer to come in to try to project, use the word project, to project specific behaviors you want in the workplace that one, uh, make for great talent attraction, but secondly, makes for customers, right? They come in, they want to buy a product that espouses these certain principles, right? That's not what I'm talking about. So if you're an HR and you're doing that, that's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is personal values, right? So personal values is, in, in my world, called neurological arousal, meaning is when we were young, we were imprinted with already things that were important to us in different areas of life. And we have our own labels. So for example, love can mean very different to anybody else. And that's why if you were to even sit down with your romantic partner and be like, what does love mean to you? Go pick up five words. And what does love mean to me? And I'll pick up five words. And you may not even have, you may have like one match going on there. So statistically, it's like trying to win a lottery. So now you can imagine something as complex and fluid as a workplace where suddenly you want someone's personal values to match organizational values. You got to do a little bit with more intention. And so the first step with values work is one, you got to actually find and elicit your personal values and what that means to you 
how to get it for yourself, how others can support it, how can others can support you getting it. Uh, so those are all really important things. And we stack that as well, meaning is there's a hierarchy of values. And that's why even in the intersection of my work in workplace mental health with uh, diversity and inclusion, sometimes somebody asks me, Duncan, I don't get it. Like uh, DI is so important. So it gets me all passionate and everything. But when I'm doing all these bias training or blah, 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 they're not excited about it. I don't get it. They're just going through like a checkbox. I'm like, yeah, it's exciting for you, maybe because it hits one of your neurological arousal values. But to them, it's not their driver values, right? Now, however, if you were to word it in a way that aligns to that, guess what? They're lit up. Out of work in relationships, by the way, if you were to speak in the way, so just say love is their number one or whatever their hierarchy of values are, just say it's love and going on vacations and trips and whatever. And, and then you can fulfill that or then help them fulfill that. You know what excites them, right? What arouses them and it gets them into intrinsic motivation. So when you're intrinsically motivated, there is that well of energy you can tap into. By the way, this is like Olympic level, like peak performers are in age, right? You know how important states are. So you want to go through your day to day with joy and grace and calm and clarity and passion. Right? It's not some woo-woo spiritual thing. These are emotional states. There's a neurological representation to it. You need to know the address of where that connects to, engage it. And there is no engagement survey now that you're 60% engaged or disengaged. It's literally I'm on or when I'm off, let's regulate and let's go on again. Right? It is a multi-billion dollar answer. Because literally that solves so much of the engagement challenges today in the workplace around culture is know your personal values. And then where it gets fun as managers is then okay, now we have organizational values, we have outcomes, we have all these different things. Take off her manager hat and, and Michelle, like yourself, put on a coaching hat and be like, now how can we successfully map your personal values to our organizational values in alignment to the behaviors that lead to the outcomes that we want to achieve not just bottom line results, but just make you feel so fulfilled and completely filled with meaning and engage in all those amazing states that are not fight or flight survival states that get you into your trouble and move you into all of not just your recovery states, but your performance states, your creative states, right? If you move into polyvagal sort of theories, you're literally at the peak of your performance in sort of state control. And you can do some really amazing things and create some really amazing bottom line results for your company that can be massive differentiators. So I can't state more than enough how powerful a well-being in the workplace is not just something that's woo-woo or touchy-feely. There's a very solid performance-based outcomes approach relationship to it that a lot of bottom line managers should consider. Oh man, that is so good. Yeah, like when trying to make the case for workplace well-being and why it's important, you can definitely come from it from a negative motivator. We don't want to lose people or there's all this turnover and it's eating up costs there. Or you can move to from a positive motivating space like that. You unlock potential, you unlock performance, creativity to next levels that then drive bottom lines. So you're fixing, you're focused on the bottom line, but it depends on whether you're coming at it from like a reactive place or a proactive place. Absolutely, that's so good. All right. One final piece I wanted to check with you on. What are some tactical tips and strategies for people who then want to DIY this? I know that you have a 30-day challenge. Would love to talk more about what do people learn in that 30-day challenge? And what are some things that you want people and listeners to walk away from after this call that they can start to immediately test or be aware of? Uh, shoot up all the skills you learn in a 30-day challenge. It's not just doing it. You learn skills and it becomes, you literally start peeling the onion. So the first skill to learn is energy auditing. So you want to be very aware. This is back to the old days of like, you can't manage what you can measure, right? This goes on to energy management as well. So you want to learn the skills to audit where your energy is going on a day-to-day week to week, month to month, year to year basis, right? Because these are your habits. And knowing this, you can change behaviors, change thinking, change emotions, change these. You're able to now look at where you can change, not just strategically, but tactically. So you learn that in part one and you apply it to your life. We find the five big areas that are big drainers. And then we work on that with week two or part two. We look at, I call it a mindset mastery, but it's just really fancy for learning skills of when you've identified something that you're compulsive with, meaning is I know this drains me because you've audited it. I keep doing it. I can't stop, right? Now for those not in burnout, but struggle with that, maybe 
How many here love their bags of chips? How many here loves their junk food and whatever? It's just all compulsiveness, right? It's all unconscious habits where we're used to wired to do that. And so you learn the skills to take out the edge in your nervous system immediately so that, oh, it's gone. And then from a mental mastery, now you can cognitively make different decisions, which lead to different behaviors. That's the mental side of things, right? Including the mental side of things is how to set boundaries. So this was a really big one specifically for burnout because setting boundaries is liberating and or reclaiming energy. And we have what's called the four D's of getting that done and the three strikes process that we teach you as a skill so you can learn to take that back. Part three, week three, we go into now emotional regulation, right? So this is a big one for people, right? So this one is the not get relief, right? Most people are like, relief, can I just sugar, whatever, just to get myself emotionally feeling better so I can just get through the day. We don't want that. So what we want to do is teach you how to activate your nervous system. We teach you how to get into peak performance states instantly using what we call neurological anchors associations. We use physicals, like tap on a knuckle and literally your body shifts, right? How you can use your breath and these different things. By the end of the day, the skills you'll learn when you're like, I feel that I'm moving into this. I need to shift my emotions out of this and I can do it immediately. So how much emotional control, how much power and empowerment do you get from that when you learn that, right? So important skill sets because that's needed one, not just to stop toxic behaviors. There's usually toxic behaviors stem from just feeling like crap. You feel like crap and you're just, ah, just everywhere, right? And so when you're in states of passion and curiosity and joy and calmness and centeredness and all those different things, your behaviors, your thinking changes and your behavior changes. So really powerful how to get that work. That's part three. Part four, we move into what you call your psychosomatics, your somatics, right? Is how do we connect now? That's a mental and emotional challenge you will think in burnout, but how can we now leverage our amazing piece of technology we have in front of us, which is our body, right? It does all these amazing things. And so while we won't really go into what to do, but we do know in burnout is what not to do, right? And so we go into things like sleep and nutrition and diet and exercise and how to tap that into your physical body and move your body uh, in ways, in postures and stances that can really get you to double down on everything you've learned in uh, mental mastery and emotional regulation. So that's really fun because usually for HR, when we do these challenges. That's where I'm like, because I joke with them. I'm like, are you the one that just bring a yoga teacher in and, and doing this type of thing? And they're like, oh, I'm so guilty of that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Should I not do that? I'm like, it's not that you can't do that, but. It's a checkbox. They finish that. They'll be like, it's amazing. Like I'll stay here a little bit longer, but this will really help in the long term, right? Now with this combined with that, we'll teach you the skills, the science, the why, understand that, then bringing a yoga class or meditation class or whatever it is. And they're like, now I get the mind-body connection. I get how this works. You're motivated. Now you can feel it. You feel the shift and you see how that ties into the entire strategy that we've built since day one. Last day, part five, we go into sort of uh, well-being and prevention to say, now that we're peeling the onion on recovery, we're moving into self-regulation. You don't have to go into trauma therapy or anything as extreme as that. You're understanding, you're peeling the onion, you're feeling the result. You're feeling the, your nervous system shifting. You're feeling the energy, the liberation come in, right? Now we call it in terms of time is life doesn't work very well in vacuums. You want to fill it with things, right? And so now that you have the skills and not fill it in with crap, you can fill it in with good things. What do those good things look like? And so then we give you the high levels of what those things look like. And we teach you how to elicit your personal values. So at least at the minimum, you can have a very informed and educated conversation, not just with your hiring manager or your interviewer, just say you're moving to an interview and you start talking about their values and they're like, what did you mean? And you just go into detail of what that means from a neurological arousal perspective and how that looks like from organizationally. They'll be like, I'm just going to hire you just to bring that into the team. Because if you know this and you can just tell your teammates, like that is already $10,000 worth of weight in gold in the first week. But why it's important because our new generation of Gen Z's walking in, and I do a lot of work with university level students as well, going into picking their job choices and now the great resignation, going to career transition whether it's to retransition, upskilling, reskilling, or just into a new role, right? Is you want to walk in knowing what turns you on and, and you tap into, right? That activates you. Have a very informed conversation and be able to steer your manager's way of your behaviors. Because at the end of the day, you're going to show them the results. That's on you. How you do it, right? Not really on them. And if they're trying to like sticks and carrots you, just be like, hey, I'm not saying that I've got more skill in managing people than you, but I definitely have more skill in managing me than you. And then that's some jaws will drop and they'll be like, what do you mean? And be like, 
Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the personal development space. I've worked with these challenges with the burnout clinic and coaches. Uh, so I spent a lot of money uh, making sure a lot of time, at least learning these skills to make sure that I can perform well and make sure I get the outcomes that you set out for and your managers will praise you. And if they don't, that's a really great place to be like, to understand it's not that I quit my workplace, I quit my manager, but to be like, hey, HR, these are really great places for manager training because it's not that they're bad managers, it's they don't even know they're bad managers. They're usually promoted for some reason because they just want to recreate themselves. But once they learn these skills, they'd be like, I'm curious, how did you learn that? I want to learn that because if I can learn that, I can help others. And that snowballs on the systemic side for managers to really understand and get a deep level connection to how to not just stop burnout, but identify burnout in the workplace. Oh man, that is so good. And kudos to you for developing such a robust program that's holistic and that uses frameworks and science and brings all of it together. It just sounds like all of your clients must be really lucky to be able to take away so much there. So thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and for this conversation. I personally learned a lot, and I'm curious if listeners want to get in touch or want to learn more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, so just go to burnoutrecoverychallenge.com because I want people to get started. We're giving out now a 60-day trial for that. And so if you sign up now and you do the challenge in the month of May, and you finish a challenge, we'll put you into a raffle to win not just a chance for burnout relief kits, but our, our grand prize of a trip to Jamaica for two people, all-inclusive seven-day. And we'll do the burnout retreat so you'll get to experience some of the wonderful tools we do uh, to help you recover quick. Not just, you know, you'll learn the tools to recover yourself from burnout, but with professional support in two days, how much we can do. So you'll get to experience that as well. You can all check me out at burnoutrecoverychallenge.com, sign up there. All our info is within there, but you can also check us out on our social media channels at The Burnout Clinic. So we're on uh, TikTok, we're on Facebook, we're on IG and on LinkedIn. If anything, you can always check out our website at theburnoutclinic.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Duncan. I'm totally looking forward to checking that out. Burnoutrecoverychallenge.com. It sounds like that's such a great way to get familiar with your methods and get entered into a trip. So thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And yeah, we'll see you next well, time. Thank you for having me. See you next time, Michelle. Thanks for listening today. If you are enjoying what you're hearing and want to take the work deeper, there are several ways to work with me. I work with my individual clients for a period of six months, supporting them through various aspects, whether it's a career transition or with honing in on their own unique leadership style. Head to www.michellekyu.com to learn more or follow me on Instagram at michelle.k.yu for more actionable tips and insights on how you can break limits in your career. New podcast episodes come out every week, so subscribe or join my email list. I'll see you all next time.